There she is. <laughs> in the cupboard. Do you know what? I'm actually in a cupboard as well this week. I've come into work and I'm in our cupboard that is very, very small. There's I the mean, door. it's nice. Look at that wood paneling. I know. I specifically requested the wood paneling. <laughs> it's lovely to see you. It's been a while. It's good to see you too. How is your house? Is it completely built? <laughs> well, we had a renovation going on upstairs and the wall in front of me on this cupboard yeah. is the bathroom. And the contractors told us a week and a half. Legitimately, it took six weeks, maybe five and a half. But I was like, Come on. Where have they been taking their estimation advice from? <laughs> Software engineers? Like, Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I have an excuse. I guess estimation's hard, but yeah. yeah, they had labor issues and it was so loud and we were basically displaced from this room. It's just so nice to be back up here again and have this space back. So This space with my clothes in it and me sat on yeah. the floor. Yeah. Well, there's something comforting about just being in this tiny closet. <laughs> <laughs> So since we last spoke, I've given a talk in Finland, which was very nice. Yuroku? Yuruko? Because it's Europe, right? Yuruko? Euro. So Ruby? So Yuroku. Oh, Ru- Ruby. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I was just like, Europeco. I don't know. <laughs> I've never really <laughs> thought about it. I just, once I got to the first three letters, the rest of it kind of blurred at the end. And it's like Heroku. Like whenever I go to type it, I spell it wrong which only has to happen 10 or 12 times a day. So that's fine. (laughs) How did it go? How was the trip? How was the conference? How was the talk? It was good. I mean, it was the last talk on the last day. So it was a proper keynote, but I have given the talk before. So that really helps. Particularly this talk is kind of threading somewhat of a needle topic wise. It's a middle-aged, middle-class white man from England talking about the history of computer science and how it doesn't necessarily favor people who don't look like me. And then I stand up on stage. I remember for 40, this talk. I stand up on stage for 40 minutes and then talk about it, which is, <laughs> I do address it in the middle of the talk. I am aware of what I'm doing. And that's part of the gag. <laughs> it went down very well. It was 700 people. Wow. Which I was not expecting. It's bigger than RubyConf. About RubyConf sized. Yeah. So RubyConf's like 600 to 800 at its biggest, I think. Not as big as a RailsConf, though, buddy. Hee ha. In your hometown. <laughs> I don't know if RailsConf was that. I don't actually know. And there was 1,100 people for RailsConf. So, yeah. There was a time when I remember RailsConf being like 1,400, and I was like, I don't understand what that number means. What does it mean <laughs> to have 1,400 people in a room? I don't know. <laughs> That's like beyond the scale of what my mental computation can do in terms of humans. I'm like, 100 people, 200 people. I know what that means. It's this room. Yeah. Then after that, I'm like, I don't know. I can't even see half of you. So that's always the thing with the so particularly those hotel conferences, they darken the audience, don't they? So you can often be staring out just into lights. I liked that about Brighton Ruby, though, or like a lot of these conferences that are single track where it's like just this beautiful venue and you're like, everybody's in this room. Yes. The whole time. I know what's happening. I'm comfortable with the number of people, with the space, but the multi track, sometimes you're just like, I don't know where everybody is. Is this everybody? Who are you? <laughs> Who am I? <laughs> we have had very different experiences of giving talks in front of big crowds, right? So when you're in those smaller multi-track rooms, depending on the talk, you can get 30 people, you can get 100 people. If you're immediately after Aaron Patterson, you can get like 400. But you and I both gave talks to big rooms recently. And I had a talk that I'd given before and I knew you worked. And you had a talk that you were still working on the night before. 
So <laughs> do you want yes. to do a run through? I said, do you want to do a run through? And you were like, uh, yeah, maybe if I finish it in time. <laughs> <laughs> Is that typically how you put a talk together? Are you often editing right up until the last minute? Well, it's usually the slides that I think kind of happen last minute. If I'm being good, the slides are done. But I put much more effort into the actual content. So like I basically have a, it's almost like writing an essay. I have it written out. Then I know like, okay, this will be broken up into three slides, this paragraph. And then I'm like, oh, the slides are easy. I am not like some people who really put a lot of effort into the slides, which I have so much respect for, but I'm just like, I can't. It's just going to drive me crazy. And I'm just going to get disheartened. So I just put like a word or three words max. That's my slide strategy. So I'm like, all I'm doing is typing words and like choosing the font. How hard can it be? I'm the same, except I then like to set the words on fire and have them spin around and then have them turn (laughs) into other words. I get carried away with my slides. But yeah, it's a microcosm of writing a talk anyway, right? What's fascinating to me is that everybody has very different ways of putting together a talk and no one's way is right. It's yeah. just, can you get to half an hour of material saying roughly what you wanted to say and being mostly entertaining? Yeah. I mean, there's many paths to get to the same destination. You just need to say something for 25 to 40 minutes usually is the yeah. range, right? Yeah, yeah. Like minimum to maximum. So you just need to get up there and say some stuff. How you do it doesn't really matter. I've seen a few talks where there was no slides. That is terrifying to me. No, I can't imagine not having the <laughs> emotional crutch of knowing that you have a visual joke coming up. Right. Or you're just like, oh, here's a transition. It takes five seconds. This is when I'll drink my water. So my last couple of talks have been, they're sort of like you, I have a script kind of thing. I don't stick to the script. It is there in case I need it. And then I get loose over the top and there are specific bits that I'll highlight so that I know I have to say that particular form of wording for the joke to work or for the thing that I'm saying to be very clear. And I literally will put drink in big letters in between (laughs) slides so that I remember to do it. I was going to ask, if you have a script, but you don't necessarily stick to it, do you find yourself ad-libbing? Did you memorize? So I don't memorize so much often because there's quite a lot of timing-based stuff and you don't get the chance to do it enough. It's not a theatre performance. It's not a monologue for theatre that you're going to give. It's a lot of work to memorize. And then for one 30-minute show, I'm not doing this. I did try to do that at one point because I thought I had to memorize. And then afterwards, I was like, this is way too much work. I just need to get comfortable glancing at notes and making my font bigger. Yeah. And that's what I do now. (laughs) Yeah, I have a script. Some people don't have a script. Some people just have notes. But I feel like if I don't have a script, I might meander. Right. Yeah. If I have notes, I can get off topic. So like, I like to have a script so I know roughly my in and out from every slide. And that helps the performance of it be relatively tight in my talks. I think I would probably even do that for a technical talk now. Yeah, I would do it for all talks. If I have a bullet point, I could talk for... 10 seconds about it, or I could talk for two minutes about it. And I really probably only need to talk for like 40 seconds max. And if I just write out what it is I want to say, I have an easier time. Because otherwise the talk will be so different each time if I don't have some roadmap for where I'm trying to go with this. Yeah. It helps me feel prepared as well. So I feel like I have the confidence. Even if it was a stilted reading, 
of an essay with accompanying visuals, it would still be fine. It's almost like a live YouTube video, that kind of, do you know what I mean? Like that kind of style. (laughs) I've already made the cuts, so you don't have to. I mean, I still do. So I gave a talk at a bootcamp in London a month ago, which is just like Ruby career type stuff. Like here's a few myths about what it's like to be a professional programmer. Here's some of the things that I think. And I went with just slides and some notes, but then that is literally stuff that I talk about all the time. And it's a much looser thing. I'm sat on a stool and there's 30 people and I'm encouraging people to interrupt and I'm expecting there to be lots of questions. Whereas at a conference talk, I really hate questions. So I'm expecting to mic drop and then wander off in a kind of man walking away from explosions, kind of cool guy (laughs) kind of way. (laughs) At the end of all of my talks, there's an explosion and I walk away slowly. How much time do you spend thinking about the talk before you put thoughts to paper? Hours and weeks and months. What's the longest span between I have a kernel of an idea to, okay, now I'm going to execute on it. This one just gone. This Mrs. Triggs problem. So I pulling notes together before the pandemic started. Wow. So multiple years. I'm reading books on the topic. I'm expanding. And the talk before that I gave is a more personal talk. And there's two other talks that I've given that sort of like less programmery specific technical talk type things. So there's one that I gave RubyConf in 2017 that was about video games, nostalgia and death. Mm -hmm. I've seen that one. And that was like a year of work. I'm pulling together the bits that I need. There's a great book by this woman, Twyla Tharp, who's like a choreographer. And she talks about her projects. I can't remember what it's called, The Creative Process or something like that. But she basically, for every new show that she's doing, she has like a box and she literally throws stuff in the box for like inspiration before she starts then unpacking the box and going, what do I have here? Yeah. And I basically do that with Apple Notes. So I have like a coherent, I have a very loose idea of here's a topic I'd like to talk about. And then I start pulling stuff in as I listen to a podcast or I read a particular thing or, and that's like for lots of stuff that I do, I've got like multiple ongoing Apple Notes for ideas of things that might be talks or side projects or things I'd want to do to stuff at work or how I might hire a junior person or all of these things. Like, and that's the same for my talks. So yeah, this one was like three years ish, two and a half years in the making. And then the one before that, which was about communication within teams. That was, I read three or four books on similar topics on like psychology and academic stuff and pop science stuff. So yeah, that was like a year as well. But I don't feel like I can give those kind of talks off the hoof because I've got to take in lots of stuff and synthesize it into something new. Yeah. Yeah. Which is different from a technical talk where you can just get really deep on a particular thing or you're presenting something that you've done at work, right? Like, you know, there's some really great talks that I've seen recently where they're like explaining how this bit of the Ruby VM works, or this is a change we've made to the core of Rails and this is how it works, or those sorts of like specific talks where your day to day, 40 hours a week ish work is the prep for the talk. So then it's just a case of synthesizing that. But when you're trying to give something that's, this is sort of what I think about this. And when you start out the talk, you may not even know what you think. Yeah. You don't know what you're trying to say. You just are like, maybe there's a connection I can make. That's a lot of times how some of my talks start. And I don't know actually what the talk is until I've done a whole bunch of research and then started to unpack the box and be like, so what do I have here? And what do I think it's trying to say? And what do I want to say? But I think the talks where you pull in something outside of the industry, especially, it's just like a lot of work, but I find those very rewarding. So I think probably for me, 
there was a talk I gave at Lead Dev earlier this year. It was like connecting urban planning, like Jane Jacobs' ideas of urban planning and city planning with software teams. I had been thinking about that talk since 2019. Mm. So it took me two and a half years to actually give the talk. And I gave a version of it that was not as good internally. Then I gave another version that was like maybe a little better to a different company. And then when I finally got up on stage to have it recorded and visible to other people, by that point, I'd been thinking about this for like two and a half, close to three years. And I'd read the book twice and I'd read a bunch of other books. And then I'd like had an idea for what I wanted to say, but in the process of revisiting it again and again, I was like, actually, I don't even think this is what I want to say. I think it's this. I just thought about that for years. And do you feel like you need to change the talk? Could you give a version of that next year and have your ideas somewhat change? Or I feel like my talks eventually achieved a kind of not perfect state, but like they get to a point where they're coherent and like adding too much into the middle or doesn't work. That's actually got to happen before I give it almost the first time. I can always add more visual jokes or more keynote animation. And often <laughs> with a particular talk. So the one I gave it, Yuruko, there were some jokes about a British person giving a talk in America that I gave at the RailsConf version. Whereas like, if you change that to a British person giving a talk in Europe, so the gags are different. Or particularly when it's the last talk of a two-day conference. So I tried to wind in stuff from the previous mm-hmm. talks, just as a little five-minute intro bit. Someone had some amazing slides that were done to look like classic Mac OS. <laughs> and I remember the talk that Aaron Patterson had given five years ago, maybe even more, where he'd either pretended to run a talk on Windows 3.1 or something or had actually done it. And so I like I faked up like a Mac OS startup thing and said, how fun that two of us decided to give our presentations from ancient operating systems, <laughs> which kind of worked quite well because some of my talks about the history of computing. So like that kind of was like a nice little dovetail in to a beginning of a talk. So yeah, there's some of that changing, but I never feel like I have to change. Once it's achieved a point where I'm happy with giving it once, I I could give it again and again, but I don't think it would change that much. I know some people have a talk that they kind of give and they change 20%. I've never been able to do that. It just feels like a waste. (laughs) Yeah. I changed some part of it, I think, just because when I look at it with fresh eyes, I'm like, oh, why am I talking about this for so long? Let's just cut this down. Or, oh, I actually think we could have another slide here to focus on this idea. And so like in the process of refreshing myself on it, I will change usually like 5%. Yeah. If I've given it multiple times, but if I've given it once and I come back and I'm like, I'm going to give it a second time, I will change more because I know after I give it the first time, I'm like, oh, I could probably do this better. But like after two to three times, by the third time, I'm usually at a point where I'm like, this is probably not going to change a ton. It might change a little bit based on Like maybe my job changed or maybe my perspective on this topic has changed slightly and I want to introduce it differently or conclude it differently. But the slides don't change a ton, maybe just a small amount. But then that's about the point when I get bored of the talk. (laughs) I don't want to give this anymore. I'm done with this. I'm tired of hearing myself say these words. And so that's when I shelve it, which is frustrating because I'm like, wow, I spent three years thinking about this and I gave this talk three times. Will I give it again? I don't know. Probably not. This is the thing that's slightly annoying about it. I think that all three of the longer talks that I've given still work. So I would like to give them again, but actually it's just once you've kind of done a Rails comp or a Ruby comp, I always feel that slightly burns a talk for that continent. Although of course it's only like a thousand people, right? If you look at the YouTube views of those talks, there aren't a great deal of people watching them afterwards. Yeah. So you could definitely give it again. But yeah, like I feel like I don't 
get out of the Ruby speaking bubble very much. I haven't got bored of any. I, I struggle to get bored of the sound of my own voice. It's so dulcet and lovely. <laughs> <laughs> I just get tired of talking about the same thing. And then I eventually go into autopilot. And I'm like, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. Team camaraderie. Who cares? Let's move on. I want to talk about something else. <laughs> it's not even that anyone in the audience is bored. I'm tired of thinking about it and hearing about it. It's like, right. it's similar to like code where you're just like, I just want to get this merged and done. I think I need to be done with this now. I actually don't think it's the giving of the talk. I think it's the stuff around the giving of the talk. Because mm. like to give a talk, you attend the conference. And I've only got so many conferences in me a year, I think, particularly running one as well. So I think that's part of it, which is why I guess you see folks who give lots of talks. So they're like, you and I give a talk every year or two, depending on how motivated we are to burn all of our free time messing with slides and telling stories. But there's a sense with the folks who give like, eight talks a year, all the same talk or 10 talks a year. And they're at something, you know, getting into the kind of dev rally kind of world. Yeah. Which is, that's hard. But then your job has to be that, right? Like you can't be like this weird work adjacent side project, weird hobby thing that we've got going on. (laughs) Have you ever talked to people outside of the industry and they're like, what do you do for fun? Or like, what are you doing this weekend? You're like, I'm going here to give a talk. You're like, oh, cool. Like for work. And you're like, not really, just kind of for myself. I volunteer to spend weeks working on that. Because I'm an egomaniac and I must have people look at me. I don't know. Like, what is that about? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you say, have you ever spoken to anyone about it? My wife, yes. It's like, why are you doing this? Don't you have enough time in front of the laptop? And I'm like, yes, but this is sort of, I mean, it, it's kind of like a nice work adjacent hobby. It helps clarify my thoughts. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a career adjacent hobby, actually. It's not to do with my job often. It's definite benefits to being somebody who can put together a talk and then deliver a talk. That is a skill set that does make you stand out, I suppose, in a crowd a bit. Mostly because you're on the stage and there are lights pointed at you and you've got a (laughs) microphone. Just that helps. Yeah. So yeah, I think there's career benefits to it for me. But why do you still continue to be like, I want to take time out of my personal life to do this. Ultimately, at the end of the day, what's the reason that you're like, I want to do this, even if it's only twice a year or once a year? What's the draw if it was one specific thing? I think it gives me an excuse to go and enjoy myself at a work conference. So I can't really justify going to a conference, certainly an international one that takes up multiple days without having as kind an of attendee. A, as an attendee. I feel the same way. I don't quite have the spousal points to be able to do that. You spend spousal points running your own conference, fact. (laughs) You spend spousal points going to conferences and speaking. I think the why the hell are you doing that feels much stronger. But actually, as I've got more senior as well, there's not a great deal that I get from a conference now that is like pure learning. And I don't think conferences are great for pure learning anyway. Mm -hmm. You watch the videos. There's something more about going there in person. It's more to me about the feeling of going to an event and being amongst my people and at this point seeing folks who I've seen at other events and hanging out, right? That's kind of the reason I want to go to them. I'm at a point where like, I do get stuff out of conferences. I I do like to go to the talks. Like some people will go to a conference and just do hallway track and I'm not in that gang. I do like a bit of hallway track, but I like to go and enjoy a well-given talk you know, from a, someone who gives talks, I can sort of appreciate it on two levels. I'm like, oh, this is a really interesting subject. And also I'm really loving their particular 
vibe on stage or style of talking. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's an excuse. That is my karmic payment for going and enjoying myself. <laughs> Do I have issues? I gotta put in the work so I can have fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Otherwise, yeah. I can't have I'm, fun without doing I must the work. give up many evenings <laughs> and like pleasurable fiction books I could be reading in exchange for <laughs> academic materials I can turn into something with silly Kino animations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is it similar for you? You said you don't feel like you can go to a conference unless you've spoken. And I think that's a self created. Yeah. thing. I don't know. It's almost like after having spoken, I'm just like, well, I didn't have anything to present. What am I doing? I'm not saying I anything. I should have things I to feel- say. I'm important. <laughs> I, I exist. <laughs> I feel like if you're going to go there, either I feel like you need to be making use of the in-person time with people mm. or either as like a networking thing or like connecting with people in the industry, which I never have felt like I was really good at. In the early parts of my career, I would just kind of be like, Hi, I don't know anybody. Hello. The speaking thing was a nice way of me being like, oh, I spoke or, oh, you were also speaking. What are you speaking? Like it was a way of having a common ground. Conversational hack. Yeah, because I'm an introvert. I don't know how to begin conversation. I don't know. I just don't enjoy being in a room of 1400 people and just being like, hello, this is me. Like I'm not going to gravitate towards those situations, but it was a nice way of having a in into the conversation or into the industry. Okay, I can justify why I'm here almost. But the reason I think I do it now is like, I really enjoy telling stories and I love public speaking. And so for me, it's almost like a puzzle because I'm like, okay, I want to convey this idea. How do I get there? And for me, it's a pain to write a conference talk. But like, it's also kind of a really fun exercise. Like I love writing. My background is in writing before. I love public speaking. And so all the pieces of constructing the talk and then actually getting up there and being like, why am I doing this to myself? Even though I know I signed up for it and I enjoy it. And then afterwards, having people come to you and be like, oh, this is such a cool idea. I never read this book or whatever. It feels like, okay, I had something to say and I went through the journey and I said it. And like that is a very validating process. But I also have done less and less, a fewer conferences over the years. I think there are a couple of years where I went really hard and I was like, this is too much. And my partner also is like watching me prep for talks and just being like, have you ever thought about doing fewer or just not doing this? You seem really stressed. And I'm like, yeah, but I love it. I really enjoy this. He's like, really? Try telling your face. (laughs) It's like you seem stressed and like practicing and you're just like spending your weekends on this. Do you really want to do this? But I do think it's like a really cool skill to have. He was speaking at a wedding once and I helped him with his speech. And he was like, wow, you're like really good at synthesizing ideas and figuring out where these jokes should go and when to connect these things. And I was like, eight years of conference speaking. We'll do that. (laughs) I mean, I also gave my brother's best man speech this summer. Mm -hmm. That was quite fun. That was an occasion where my family, including my wife and kids, saw me do a thing that's like the thing they know that I do, but don't understand. Have they ever seen you speak before? Weirdly, I don't practice my talks on my spouse. And they've not actually attended conferences. Probably your kids haven't. No, no, the kid's too little now. There's definitely a sense of that was an occasion to use those skills. Right. On a topic that I knew well, i.e. my brother. (laughs) And A topic you know well. (laughs) (laughs) And like working out who the audience is, like all of those skills that you try and do and like getting the right level. And even a best man speech, you're doing a similar sort of thing where you're just like, 
be slightly risque. My style is quite loose, right? So if you've ever seen it, talk. <laughs> I'm quite good at dancing near the line, but never crossing it. Mm-hmm. So I'm not in a way that means it. Oh, I'm not. Uh, basically, I don't play an idiot on the internet. <laughs> you can be a little bit risque, but like you don't want to offend the grandparents. It's that level of I'm just playing with the format of it as well as the play as actually being funny about a thing. You're also going, yeah. oh my god, he's not going to do this, is he? <laughs> but, I love that particular feeling of I try and get at least one moment in all of my talks where there's a sense in which the audience kind of takes a breath and goes, oh, he's not going to, and then I don't, and it's fine. Best man speeches, that's literally the point of them is to be mm-hmm. ever so slightly near the line, but not cross it. Because your nan's there. <laughs> that was a really nice experience. All my kids sort of watched me do this like 10 minute best man speech and were like, oh, that's what you're you funny. Do. You can do this funny, you can do this like standing up funny thing. <laughs> It's like, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> it's like a different side of you where it's like, oh, you're like a person. You're not just dad. Yeah. You could do other stuff except keeping us alive. But sometimes only just about doing that first bit. Because <laughs> you are putting on a persona as well when you're giving a talk, right? Like you're doing Oh, a, yeah. Yeah. There was a great podcast I used to listen to. It was stand up comics talking to a stand up comic about their craft. And I, found it completely fascinating. And I'm not ever saying in any world that I could be a stand-up comedian because it's really, really hard and I think the disappointment would kill me. <laughs> but like, I can appreciate some of the things they go through and like some of the skills that they have because you use like a mm. really basic version of those for like conference talk speaking. Yeah. Yeah, the iterativeness and the... In a conference talk, you're allowed to have multiple minutes between jokes, whereas as a stand-up, that's generally considered to be bad form. And makes for a very awkward comedy club. <laughs> Stretching that particular muscle, it's like playing football for me. I'm an okay 43-year-old man who plays football. Doesn't mean I enjoy it any less because it's not a very high quality. But yeah, it's a similar sort of like, that's how I sort of pitch it in my head. It's like something I like doing and I enjoy when I'm doing it and does require me to stay fit. It's interesting. The different persona thing is also very, I think, accurate too. You can do all this prep work, but then once you get on stage... I switch into like a different mode and like my partner and some family have seen me speak and they're like, oh, there's this version of you. And then like, obviously they've seen me like rocking back and forth being like, oh, this isn't good enough the day before or whatever. And be like, what? I hope it goes okay. And then afterwards being like, do you think that this was good? I think I would have changed this. So they've seen like the before and after. But then when you're on stage, at least for me, I go into this mode, something switches on. And I think maybe that's just like my public speaking persona. But it's interesting, I think, for the people in my life who've seen me speak, seeing me on stage and the mode I get into also kind of explains a little bit about why I go through the hell of doing it. Because it's hell, but it's also fun. Yeah, it's a fake confidence thing. Because you're not as confident as you portray on stage. No one is. But the thing you're doing, and I think part of the reason why it feels like a version of yourself, is because you're having a meta conversation with yourself as it's happening. Yeah. Like the more you do it, the more you develop the skill of being both presenting, but also having a conversation with yourself in the background. And that's pure exposure. That's pure doing it on stage and being used to that feeling of, I know my body is going to make my face go red. It's going to make me sweat. When I finish this, there's going to be this lovely adrenaline washout, tingly (laughs) feeling that I get. Adrenaline's quite a powerful hormone. So you get that lovely like adrenaline tingles. And you just need like a little quiet place to go for 10, 15 minutes afterwards. But because you 
are on stage doing that. Like the more you do that, the more you're able to go, oh, this is what it's like giving a talk. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's a different experience than having a conversation or even like karaoke, which you would think would be quite similar, standing up in front of people and singing. It's on the spot versus prepared and the build-up yeah. is different. Yeah. The build-up is so different, I think, because you've prepared something and you care about it and you've thought about it and you want to do a good job conveying it. You have the one shot. Yeah. And if it's a recorded talk, you have the one shot with all the people on the internet who are going to see it too. So ah, There's only like ever 70 of those. <laughs> <laughs> I stumbled across an old video of one of my talks. I was like, really? It's been on there five years and there's like 70 people have seen this? Why did I bother? <laughs> But yeah, it's interesting. That different mode is so powerful. But when I think about it now, as we're talking about it, I don't actually remember giving most talks. I will remember moments from it. Mostly I'm like, oh, what a nice stage. Or, oh, I said this thing and a lot of people laughed. Or, oh. I mean, I I remember that bit. (laughs) (laughs) Or I got choked up and now that's scarred in my memory. Like, I'm not going to forget that. But I don't remember the actual 30 minutes or 40 minutes of giving the talk. I kind of black out. And I'm like, I know I did it. I'm not going to watch the video because I hate watching videos of myself, but I know I did it and I'll remember bits and pieces, but it's a powerful experience to get up there and speak, but it's almost like a accent in time. And then I can't really hold on to that feeling, which is probably why I keep doing it. I'm like, oh, I want that again. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not like I did it. I gave a talk and now I have that experience. I'll just go back to that experience in my head whenever I need to. No, it fades. Yeah. Yeah. But also you get the benefits of people coming up and saying nice things it's got echoes of niceness. So there's the immediate niceness of in the room where, you know, immediately like four people will come up and say, well done, or give you a hug or whatever you need at that time. Yeah. And then afterwards you get echoes for weeks, which is really nice. Do you have one brewing now or are you down for a bit? I haven't had any ideas of anything recently. No, I've been doing a lot of writing. So like my draft note of an idea, anytime I have something like that, I'll stick it in a document and turn it into an article because mm. I signed up to write six articles a year for lead dev. And I'm like, oh, shit, I have a deadline. <laughs> I got to do this. <laughs> and I feel like with talks, unless I'm like I've submitted to give a talk or I've been invited. I wait for the idea to come and then I like move on it. Yeah. But I haven't yeah. had any new ideas. That, like, I don't know. It's been a very busy summer. And look, I gave two talks, a new talk in April. And in May. I'm like, and then I was time. like, I think I'm done for 2022. We'll see. We're addicted to the adrenaline, massive egomaniacs, <laughs> too much spare time. <laughs> and this is why we do it. <laughs> yeah. Pick your poison. It's at least one of the above, if not all. 